0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 419 of the podcast for June 23rd, 2021. My guest today is Allison Greco, and you'll learn more about her in a minute. We have a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation today where we will talk about how she first learned about continuous improvement in uh, the railroad industry, how she has started a new continuous improvement professional society. And we'll talk about applications and lessons learned from her participation in pageants. So that'll be the first time, maybe the only time we'll ever get to talk about that here on the podcast. So you can find uh, links and show notes, more information about Allison, her continuous improvement international organization that you can join. You can learn more uh, by going to leanblog.org slash 419. As always, if you like the podcast, please rate and review. If it's your first time listening, please consider following. And if you like the episode, it would really help you if you share it on social media and particularly on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Now, here is Allison. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We're joined today by Allison Greco, she is the founder of her organization called Continuous Improvement International. So, Allison, thank you for joining us here today. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me to join you today.
0: Oh, I'm glad we can have the conversation. Um, tell everyone a little bit about Continuous Improvement International. It's an interesting, you know, uh, kind of you know a start. Still fair to call it a startup.
1: Yeah, I I would definitely say Continuous Improvement International is still in startup phase. In January, we launched our damn good membership. It's development, accountability, and mentorship. So it's a fresh, modern professional society for continuous improvement uh, professionals, process improvers, lean practitioners to come together and grow our skills together so that we can all work on improving our businesses.
0: And the website for that is?
1: Continuous-improvement.com.
0: Okay. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, And we'll have a chance, I think, to talk about the organization and what makes it different and modern and unique um, later here in the episode. But I do like to ask guests, if I have a standard question here, it's about the origin story. What's your Lean Six Sigma origin story, Allison?
1: My origin story is really working for the railroad, kind of an unusual path, but I had an opportunity to intern with the LEAN team at Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, now BNSF, and we worked on optimizing railroad maintenance, and that's actually my first exposure not only to LEAN, but also to, to gemba walking, as I would call it. So as part of my training, they uh, dropped me off at the Kansas City Rail Yard and told me that when I made it to L.A., I could hop on a flight and come home. So I I literally uh, hopped freight trains for a week (laughs) learning how to um, to navigate train management systems, understanding how things worked from a conductor and an engineer's perspective so that I could really understand you know, how the business worked when I was going back and, and trying to do my, my work in maintenance.
0: Do people still hop, this is a random question, still hop unauthorized rides on trains like back <laughs> in the day or cartoons or movies? You'd have People just jumping onto the train. You were doing this in an authorized
1: way. I, I I have never witnessed it myself, but I've read stories about those who who do uh, who do trespass in hot freight trains. But one of the bigger problems with uh, with trains is all of the uh, graffiti that you see ah. on trains. So people still yeah. still must be trespassing in rail yards doing their graffiti art. Wow.
0: All right. So you made it to LA, your Gemba rides on on the trains. Um, Okay. So you were safe. I was just worried in hindsight.
1: I was actually inside the the locomotive. I was not. All right. Well, good. I I was, I was not hanging on the, the, the little ladder. I was inside the freight train inside the locomotive.
0: Okay. That paints a better picture of, uh, (laughs) all right. So you're getting the, uh, the perspectives of, um, what do you call the the? Is it called a conductor when it's a freight train?
1: Yeah, conductor and an engineer.
0: Okay, and so you were learning their perspectives, and then as part of that, you know, I'm curious, like you know, for a railroad, what were their goals and objectives when it came to continuous improvement? I bet the conductor and the engineer had a lot of ideas.
1: They they did. They'd had a lot of ideas, and I think the the railroad was very data driven. So we had really great operational metrics that we were driving towards. So our continuous improvement goals were really the operational goals of things like um, like on-time delivery of the freight, making sure those trains arrived in the rail yard on time. And so in in maintenance, we were looking at uh, really rail speed and making sure that we were maintaining the tracks so that the trains could travel over them at the designed speed. And so then, of course, if we're not doing a good job of maintaining the tracks, then, you know, you have slowdowns and and, um, construction zones just just like you do on a highway.
0: And when you were getting this introduction, um, what was their process in terms of of training? And, and, And they were framing it as Lean Six Sigma, correct?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, at the time, and this is this is a, a a couple of years ago, the railroad had a lean department and a six sigma department. So, in maintenance, we primarily looked at lean, and in the um, the area of the business where they worked on the rail cars, they did more of a six sigma approach. So, yeah, they definitely worked in in lean and six sigma.
0: And so you went through kind of a typical training belt progression when you were there at BNSF?
1: I didn't. I didn't go through my belt progression until quite a bit later in my career. So I I learned the fundamentals uh, within the railroad, learned all about lean and how to work projects. But it really wasn't until I went to the utilities many years later when I earned my black belt.
0: Yeah, so you've worked in a lot of... um, different settings where people probably hit you with the whole, um, the concern of, um, you know, we don't build cars, how does this apply to us?
1: What- yeah, that's been my whole career. So we, we do typically hear about, Lean Six Sigma in the manufacturing world. And I even went to school for industrial engineering, which is very much geared toward manufacturing and um, working on assembly lines. But in my career, I've always worked in non-manufacturing. We're providing mostly a service. So railroad, government, oil, gas, and utilities But we were able to quickly demonstrate how to use those same concepts and the same mentality to make improvements in a service-based industry.
0: Yeah, so you've navigated, you know, these different industries, these different uh, environments after you you navigated the trains, I'm still picturing (laughs) you. Literally. (laughs) Um, One thing we've been navigating over this past year plus is... First off, virtual environments. And we've had a couple of guests here on the podcast where we talk about doing virtual improvement work and um, how to best navigate some of that. But now we're kind of moving into more of what people are calling a hybrid working world. Um, so we're going to talk about that. I mean, you know, first off, what are your thoughts on, you know, kind of a high level? How do you describe, you know, this new hybrid working model? What are you seeing and hearing out there?
1: Right. The, the hybrid working model is, is really, I think, the future of work in a, an excellent way, as we say, respect for people. It's an excellent way to respect people, that they get the time in the office, but they also get the benefits of working from home. So it's a great way to engage your employees, to provide them with a, a better opportunity to manage their work and, and life but it also does create a lot of challenges especially for leaders and continuous improvers.
0: And so that probably means everything from certain days in some workplaces it might be certain days of the week have certain people physically there some people at home. There might be different settings where it's a class or an event where you know maybe there's part of the workforce that's always at home some is always at work, but I guess we're trying to navigate like this blended model of we've got not just people on screens now, but we've also got people in the room. Like, have have you been, I haven't navigated that yet. So that's why I'm curious what some of your first experiences are or thoughts or tips on, on, on best navigating that.
1: Yeah. It's, it's quite, it's quite a challenge because I companies are trying to figure out right now, how do they navigate it? Are there, A days and B days where there are certain departments that are there on Mondays and Tuesdays, as you're saying, and other departments that are there uh, Wednesdays, Thursdays, but it's, it's going to be a lot more complex than that for a lot of organizations uh, because now that we've had this opportunity where we are home with our children or we're home with our spouses or our dogs, uh, you know, our expectations have changed quite a bit. And so, especially as continuous improvers, we are accustomed to working in person. We love our rapid improvement events. We love our Kaizen events. We do in-person training. And now that we don't have that, that, that place where we can bring everyone into the room together, it's really tough and creates a lot of challenges. And the first challenge that companies really need to work to overcome is uh, getting personal. At work, we tend to put up this wall between what is work and what is home. And now that that wall is completely gone. So employers have to get accustomed to asking those personal questions, but asking in a way that's work-related. So what we instruct our organizations that we work with and and CII is to start having those conversations with your employees. Ask them, what are the challenges that you have at home? Are there things that we need to be aware of that are impacting your work or what can we do to help you be more successful at work?
0: And, you know, I I, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, thinking back to people I've been working with virtually over this past year plus, um, you get a glimpse sometimes literally into their home and that creates a different um, maybe opportunity to get to know each other a little bit better. Like, you know, this morning I hosted a webinar and, and this is not a surprising thing in a pandemic era of uh, one of the panel participants is working from home. Dogs started barking in the background, you know, and, 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 and she was, you know, she um was embarrassed, mortified. Uh, she, you know, it didn't, she didn't let it phase her though. But I think people have become a lot more gracious when things like that happen. Like this is just, life right now, whether it's uh a kid or a dog or a fire truck going by. I mean, that could happen in a workplace. Um, but yeah. I can think of like some colleagues where like I'm I'm not a small talker in terms of asking, I should probably be better about this, about asking getting to know about people's families within, I think as you were alluding to, you know, appropriate boundaries. But you know, I think as we've gotten those glimpses into home life, I can think of some colleagues who I work with a lot, where I've gotten to know, you know, some details about their their life that they might not have shared when we were kind of in a typical sterile, we're in the workplace kind of environment. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and I think there's a lot too that uh, we we maybe previously hid. So, you know, from for my my world, my kids get out of school at 2:30. So I've told my team, I said, I will meet with you until 2 30. But at 2:30, I really need to leave and pick up my children from from work. In the past, I might have had to really struggle around how do I get them picked up from school on time. But now that I can just pop out of my house, be gone for 15 minutes and come back it's just acceptable. And so now that we can understand, uh, you know, how to accommodate our employees better to understand how we can keep them more engaged. So instead of me on a, on a conference call at two thirty trying to join the conference call and pick up my kids at the same time and trying to kind of hide the fact that I have to go pick up my kids and now it's okay. We can talk about it and we can work through those things.
0: And I mean, do you think that, that, deeper level of personal connection translates into working together more effectively when it comes to the job at hand?
1: It it absolutely does. And then I think we're also discovering that we have a lot more in common with each other than maybe we previously thought, that we all have a lot of the same challenges or we have the same interests, like the dogs barking. Now we all know that uh, you know who likes dogs and we can connect over that.
0: Yeah. Was that a cat?
1: That was my children. Oh, did you hear that?
0: That's I, I heard something.
1: They're are th- three rooms over. Oh my it's
0: goodness. okay. It's okay.
1: <laughs> I was I was doing a webinar actually on um, on how to do continuous improvement in the virtual work environment, and here here walks my four year old, and he's waving <laughs> to everybody. I'm like, well, there you go. Did now people think bad. you?
0: Did people think you uh, you planned that? <laughs>
1: No, I don't think so. I think I was, I probably had the shocked look on my face.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so what, what are some other factors, you know, when it comes to a hybrid worker world, you mentioned, um, you know, things that we would normally or ideally want to do in person, rapid improvement events, Gemba walks, huddles, yeah. What, what, what uh, thoughts on any of those um, practices and what it means in a hybrid working world?
1: So there's some great things. So things like rapid improvement events and, uh, and Kaizen events can be done uh, in some ways more effectively now, because in the past, a lot of times we had struggles with scheduling. So if you have a company that has four locations, you have quite the nightmare trying to schedule everyone to be in the same location for the same days. And now that we're doing hybrid events, we can um, do them a lot more easily because people don't have to travel. So uh, the things, though, that that I encourage people to think about is, one, shortening the events. Um, An eight-hour rapid improvement event, when you are looking at the computer screen the whole day is not effective. But you can really effectively chunk that into you know, three or four hour pieces where you can get some solid work done, but uh, you can keep people's attention. But the things that people don't really think about in the hybrid world is that you have to level the playing field. So if you have people who are in an office and you have people who are at home and some who are in a conference room, you have to make sure that you're providing the balance with that group. So for example, if I'm the only person at home and there's six or seven people sitting around a conference table, that that playing field is not level. I will be left out as the one single person every single time. I will be an afterthought. So you have to be really creative in um, trying to balance that and, and respecting the person who's remote and respecting those in the room. So that's when you can get creative about um, maybe you you get half on computer and half in the room, take some turns, swap it up, uh, because that person who's remote then feels very uh, left out of the group.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm with you when it comes to... The screen fatigue of how long people can really be engaged. I've seen, I think, when virtual conferences are most effective, it seems like people figured out quickly um, shorter days spread out across more days because we're not having to pay for additional nights in a hotel room. So you can do three hours a day for four days instead of trying to have two full days. And I think it helps people balance, they've still got their regular job. Right, So to take, take time away to do some of that conference time, shorter blocks of time, and, and even shorter talks. Like I think that's a continuous improvement that should apply to in-person conferences. That's, that's a soapbox I get up on yeah. sometimes where a, a larger number of 20-minute talks sometimes can be more engaging for an audience. For one, you're giving more people an opportunity to get up on stage. Some people can do a great 20-minute talk but they get tired or they run out of things to say <laughs> trying to carry a whole hour. So maybe maybe smaller batches is a way to go regardless of the format.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely and that goes for training as well. So in continuous improvement, lean training The the kind of pre-COVID thought is you would go to a class for multiple days in a row. So you might go to a class Monday through Friday for 40 hours. And in a hybrid world, it's really not effective, but it's actually more effective for, for the human brain to learn in short chunks. So when you go to a hybrid world, you can get creative in training in two or three hour sections as well. And then it gives your students an opportunity to digest that uh, or some things we've been exploring with the CII membership is one hour, once a week, and then provide some homework. So you can go apply that concept, do a little bit of homework, and then build on it each week, which is a more effective way for us to learn anyway.
0: Sure. Yeah, that model of uh, learn and do and reflect and come back and learn some more. Um, I mean, does does that, I wonder what are applications when it comes to the way belt training and certification is done, as that's opposed right. to long chunks of classroom time, and then go off and do a project. We might, I think we're coming yeah. back to the idea again of smaller batches, maybe.
1: Right, right. And we're at CII, we're working on a new certification and training course as well. and And that's exactly the approach that we're going to take, is some smaller batches, to where you can learn some concepts, work on your project, then come back, work on the next piece of your project, and uh, and have some time to go apply what you're learning in between. So I think we'll start to see that shift, uh, or at least some more options, especially with belt training, those kind of things. Yeah.
0: Um. So, I don't. I mean, let, let's let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Um. What What are the levels of um belt? certification that, that you offer. Tell us a little bit more about how you do that at CII.
1: Right. we're We're currently developing two levels. So we're developing continuous improvement practitioner, which is more for someone who's going to do projects kind of in addition to their day-to-day work, and then continuous improvement professional, which would be for the person who does continuous improvement as their full-time profession so we're working on uh, developing the uh, the certification process right now but it it takes you through how to identify a project initiate change management and go through stakeholder analysis all the way through even facilitation skills and uh, our approach to facilitation skills is changing because of covid as as well because now facilitation needs to be not just in person facilitation but how do you facilitate virtually as well
0: hmm. Now, uh, do you have people asking, though, for the belt label? And I ask this for, you know, give a little background. I have some lean certification from 20 years ago, almost, when I worked at Honeywell, because they had a formal program. They didn't call it a belt. I'm not necessarily the biggest advocate for the belt um, terminology, um, but t- I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts on labeling it as practitioner and professional. That makes sense. But are people saying like, yeah, but what color is my belt? Because that mm-hmm. is so
1: widespread. It, it is very widespread. So it's going it's going to take some time to change the mentality and to change that old guard of, of, well, it has to be green belt and black belt. So right now, as I'm describing these two individuals, I'll say practitioner is roughly green belt equivalent, Black, uh, professional is roughly black belt equivalent, but they're different and unique. And one of the things that we struggle with, and I struggled with in, in hiring new employees when I worked for different companies, is what is a black belt? And you would discover very quickly in the interview process that a black belt to one person and a black belt to another person could be entirely different things. So we're working at CII to develop a new standard as well, so that when you have practitioner, you know exactly what level of rigor was required to earn that certification.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you really do have to dig into the detail of, well, at what at what company did they get their belt? And um, yeah, there, there is a surprising amount of variation. Um, somebody just passed a test or did they go through a project that was mentored by um, the appropriate level belt mm-hmm. um, above them? Um, but you mean, anyway, it sounds like you're you're trying to um just in general with what you're doing at continuous improvement international um to to, to rethink things like and then maybe we can, we can delve into this a little bit more of like rethinking what does it mean to be part of a professional organization society that's focused on you know because i I'm a member of society for health systems which is part of the institute of industrial and systems engineers so like you said earlier we're, we're we're both ies um you've got um you know di- different organizations related to continuous improvement or quality or what have you there's kind of a traditional model um like what what was the spark maybe first i'll ask what was the spark of trying to do uh, a different model like what I'm sure like with any entrepreneur that you saw a need or that there was something missing from your own experiences, not to pick on any of these other organizations, but I'm just curious like what some of that genesis was.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what it was. I I was sitting in my office in one of the companies where I worked and, and through my office window, I could see another company and I thought, I wonder what they're doing over there what is their improvement team like? What are their struggles? And I looked for an organization that was out there that would bring us together and really didn't find one. Or what I found was that in a lot of places, we had groups that were sprung up by volunteers who were very excited to bring people together. But as that volunteer moved to a new position, then then the group kind of fell apart. So I knew that we needed an organization that had core support. The the support system is always there, but with the same philosophy of bringing people together and sharing, but making it a lot more member driven. So we really focus on practitioners. We focus on listening to what they need and what their struggles are. So we hear a lot of challenges with a lot of soft skills, things like, how to influence, how to work through change management. We, we, can, we can totally kill it on the hard skills, process mapping, data analytics. But what we struggle with the most is things like, how, how do you get your boss on board with a change? How do you influence senior leadership? How do you work with that naysayer who just feels like they have it out to get you? So we're working on, through CII, providing those avenues to bring people together and focus on a lot of those soft skills that can make them Mm -hmm. really successful, going far beyond what you just learn in in the books.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can see that being very helpful. It's um, not just a matter of knowing what to do, but how to go about it. How do we engage the people doing the work, whether they're on a train or an assembly line or a hospital. Um, Yeah, how do we, uh, yeah, so there's, I think, great opportunities there. And under the banner of continuous improvement, you're welcoming of people who are doing Lean Six Sigma. Lean Six Sigma, you're, you're, it sounds like, less framed around a particular methodology.
1: Right, right. Because we we really want to meet people where they are. And if an organization has been working on their Six Sigma journey for 10 years, then the same tools that we're teaching you, the same skills can be applied, whether you call it operational excellence, or you know, process improvement, or lean, the same concepts apply. We're all driving towards continuous improvement. So we want to provide those resources wherever you are. Mm-hmm.
0: And and membership is completely individual-based, is that right?
1: We we offer corporate and individual memberships. So a a company can uh, apply for a membership for their whole team, or you can join as an individual. And it's really for those who are just getting started with continuous improvement who want to learn more. And even those who are more seasoned, but want to continue to grow in their skills.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned um, the certification programs that you're developing. Um, What what are some of the other uh, features or benefits of CII for the members?
1: We, We have quite a few offerings for our members. So we have a member portal that has a whole library of courses. So you can get your introduction to change management, introduction to stakeholder analysis, but we have some unique courses that we've developed exclusively for CII with things like how do you do virtual improvement events with an entire step-by-step guide to things like goal setting and a whole concept of improvement agility to where we can improve at a faster pace we have a library of templates, so all of your tools and templates, you don't have to go recreate all those racy templates and eight step models, we have all of those for you. We have a community that's moderated for our members to connect, to share their lessons and to just get help when they need it. And then we offer live events via zoom on a regular basis, so we have CI cafe where our members get together in a facilitated discussion and share stories. And we have our meeting of the minds group where it's that one week, um, uh, one hour a week where we work on those soft skills together. And that's all part of the membership.
0: Um, This is your uh, first time as an entrepreneur after being in different corporate settings?
1: It is my first time as an entrepreneur, but when I... When I earned my MBA, I had an emphasis in entrepreneurship and uh, developed a business plan for a new technology that was being developed at the University of Oklahoma, I entered in a team for a business plan competition. We won the whole business plan competition. So I, I've always known that there would be uh, an entrepreneurial gig in my future. I just didn't know at the time what it was going to be.
0: Yeah. So how has your experience um, thinking about process as an industrial engineer, thinking about continuous improvement, um, how have you been able to utilize some of that background and experience here in a startup venture?
1: I think my background with Lean has been tremendously helpful because I have done, um, I did a, a problem statement. I, I dug in and, and documented what problem am I trying to solve. I started going through my stakeholder analysis and identifying all my stakeholders and uh, what what impacts they had um, as a result of what I'm trying to do and how they could influence what I'm trying to do. So I think it helped give me a lot more structure into what I was doing. But probably the biggest benefit has just been that me- mentality of. Continuous improvement and fail forward. So we've tried a lot of things in CII that have not worked. Uh, we did surveys of customers, and we did exactly what the customers said they wanted, and it didn't work. <laughs> so we we keep trying new things, and we keep listening to customers. And I think because of that, you know, we've learned from our failures, but we've have some great new things that are coming. Because we're constantly listening to our customers, and and we're willing to try some things and fail.
0: And 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 look, those those failures happen. I think any of us who are involved in continuous improvement efforts realize sometimes there are times when you have what seemed like a solid hypothesis, and then it just doesn't play out the way you expected, and you learn something, and you you know, keep moving forward um, in, in, in a better way, you know um, I mean, in a way this almost morphs into an episode of uh, another podcast series that I do called my favorite mistake where I was talking the other day um, future guest in that series, uh, Melissa Perry, who's also an industrial engineer, but she's been involved mostly in software companies in roles of product management within bigger companies and, and within, startup ventures. And she brought up the same dynamic that you mentioned, Allison. There's what the customer says they want to do versus what they actually do. And that's tough. Um, And I think there are lessons, you know, sometimes framed as lean startup methodology that says, all you can do, like, how quickly can you go test the hypothesis? People say they will pay money for this. How quickly can we test it where they actually enter their credit card number or not? That's the real validation, right?
1: Absolutely. And, and probably one of the biggest things that that was a positive uh, we'll say failure is that because of COVID, we we had to delay the launch of um, the membership. But because of that delay, because we really didn't, you know, have an idea of what was going to happen with COVID, we had an extended beta test. And that extended beta test was tremendously helpful. And that's that beta test is where we really learned that what the customer said they wanted and what they actually wanted were a little bit different. And that's the cat. Okay. That,
0: <laughs> I think that might be what I heard. I don't know. It sounded like what I heard before. So um, I've got no pets here to interrupt. Um, no kids. My wife is at an office instead of working from home. So I... I don't think I'll have any. But now I say that and like the condo building will do some sort of announcement about fire alarm testing. Right, so Hopefully right. hopefully not. There's always something. Um so again that's that's okay. Um but I but I appreciate your openness around I mean this is the entrepreneurs journey. We try things, not everything works and 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 I think you know I want to hear your thoughts on this. It's better to have that realization, again, when you think of this way, a continuous improvement effort, like for a listener who's maybe not doing something uh, something in a startup, we try something new. A process change, a new business, a new product or service line within that business. So the challenge, I want, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, um, the gray area. We're trying something new. Is it not working or is it not working yet? How do we figure that out?
1: That is probably one of the most difficult parts of being an entrepreneur. Is it it not working or is it not working yet? So we try our best to have our key performance indicators to help us identify those trends uh, and those signs of future success. And so I think in entrepreneurship, at least, that's a little bit of an art, more of an art than a science and probably to a certain extent with continuous improvement as well, that there's a little bit of faith that you have to have and uh, a willingness to uh, to hold that out just for a little bit longer, if, if you can, to, to wait and see if you don't have great metrics. Because that's one of the problems with with startups and small companies is there's not a lot of great things to measure to help you indicate whether or not uh, success is is coming.
0: Yeah. And it's and th- tough. It is tough. And you think about workplace improvements, this dynamic that comes up a lot, it's real. And when you talk about change management, the performance dip, productivity may suffer just because we're trying a new way of doing the work that we think is better, but it's not comfortable yet. So you have that performance dip. And I think this is where, you know, you've got to listen to feedback from people, um, the people you know, people who are doing the work, is is it uncomfortable? And we think we can get through it. Is there a learning curve, or is this terrible? And and you might get various feedback, different feedback depending on who you're talking to at the moment. So I think there is a lot of um, art, or you're taking it as a, a leap of faith or a hypothesis. Stick with it a little bit longer. Let's see how it goes. You know, uh, my my co-author. From my healthcare Kaizen books uh, Joe Schwartz oh gosh what's the time frame um I don't want to quote the exact number but one thing that they've tried to do organizationally is just have a certain period where we we test the change let's not declare victory too quickly let's not give up too quickly. I figured if it was seven days grace maybe that just you know and that's a rule that's a rule of thumb like sometimes you know faster sometimes it takes longer depending on the measures and the cycles that you can go through
1: yeah that's a big part of it is measuring the cycles so i've that's exactly what what your your ideas were leading me towards as i worked on one project that was working on monthly close so the process that a company goes through to close their books to Essentially, I equate it to balancing a checkbook. So when you're doing a process that only occurs once a month, you're going to have to wait through multiple cycles to see how it's going. And so those can be very trying because it's such a long period for us to stay focused and interested. But then right now I'm working on a company, work with a company who's implementing a software and they're measuring user adoption, but that's something we can measure on a daily basis on a daily basis, we can measure that user adoption and we can see if we're steadily increasing. So your timely timeline for, for your patients has to be very different based on what you are improving. So seven days grace for the software system is, is probably reasonable, but for the accounting process, it's more like seven months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, I'm going to try out uh, a new segment or a new question here. So I'm going to throw this at you, but I think this might be a fun discussion. Um, I'm going to call it uh, best thing, worst thing. I'm going to ask about kind of two different levels. So first off, when it comes to continuous improvement, any of your involvement of, of, of doing, coaching, teaching, what's the best thing about continuous improvement and what's the worst thing about it, at least just to
1: you? The best thing about continuous improvement by far is light bulb moments. Those moments when you're in the classroom or you're coaching someone and all of a sudden you see the spark in their eyes where they finally understand what you're trying to accomplish. They see, oh my goodness, I see how much improvement we can make. I get how continuous improvement can change my life. And from that moment on, you see it happen and you just know that for the rest of that person's life, they're changed forever. And they're an advocate forever. And once once you taste it, you're hooked. So that's the absolute best is the light bulb moments. Yeah,
0: kind of in a, in a good way, the addictive nature of continuous improvement.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yes, yes, the addictive nature of continuous improvement. And then you go home and you want to continuous improve your entire life. And then you make your kids do checklists in the morning and you you make them do some 5S in their playroom. Yeah, guilty.
0: Yeah, and that, that was something yeah. we talked about recently. Uh, one of my guests uh, from Michigan, Katie Lebeds, she's involved in the Michigan Lean Consortium. She has a book, I think it's called How to Improve Absolutely Anything. And she incorporates a lot of examples uh, from that at home, because you're right, when people are empowered and they are initiating change that matters to them, great things happen. So if we can do that at home, how do we create that sort of environment in the workplace? It's more complicated because there's more people and different drivers and needs and dynamics, but that self-motivation and that excitement, like you said, often plays out at home.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So now the the flip side of best thing, worst thing, worst thing about continuous improvement, biggest challenge, what should be better?
1: The biggest challenge with continuous improvement is probably when you have someone that has the light bulb, but their supervisor or their leader doesn't have the support for continuous improvement as well. Uh, it's probably the most difficult thing that any continuous improver goes through is trying to now sell continuous improvement up the channel. And uh, sometimes it's a simple sell. You, you show, you take that leader to the Gemba, you show them the pain and suffering their employee has, but sometimes you just have that leader who doesn't seem to get it. You've tried everything and seems to just continue to resist despite your best efforts. That's the worst part about continuous improvement is when those leaders just don't get it yet.
0: And w- whether that means they're dismissive about an employee's idea, that's that's bad, demoralizing, frustrating. Or if an executive is dismissive of the whole concept of continuous improvement, that that's frustrating as well.
1: Yep, absolutely. It's both.
0: What we can do about it—that's that's the more difficult <laughs> question. How do right. we how do we influence people? Um, do we influence our situation by leaving and going someplace else? That's tough questions that other people have to face. Right? Absolutely. Um, so thanks for that. Now I want to maybe also come back now to your journey as an entrepreneur. Best thing, worst thing about being an entrepreneur.
1: When my cat goes away, I'll tell you. (laughs) Uh, Best thing, worst thing about being an entrepreneur. uh, Best thing is full and complete ownership of what you're working on. Having full control in all those decisions, even the bad ones that I've made, um, even the mistakes that I've made, I know that uh, it was my my direct control, my direct good or bad decisions that, that made that happen. Uh, it's absolutely the most fulfilling thing that I have done by far to create something that can really help others improve in their work.
0: And, and it could be that that's what really makes someone an entrepreneur, the fact that you say that that's the best thing. That responsibility, that ownership—some people would run from that, right? Just different so people wired. Some run, people different would
1: people. run. And now that I've seen both, I spent quite a bit of time in corporate world, and and now a couple of years in entrepreneurship world. I I have the benefit of being able to compare, and certainly I miss. The comforts of working in a corporate environment, knowing that I'll have a paycheck tomorrow and my job should still be there tomorrow. So I, I sometimes yearn for, for an HR department and IT department that I don't have now. Uh, but I'm, I, I gained so much in, in just self fulfillment.
0: Yeah. So that's part. Of, is that your, is that your worst thing? I guess some of those. Factors, or is there a worse, is there a different worst thing about being an entrepreneur?
1: Uh, other than COVID being the worst thing, <laughs> uh, I, I would say probably one of the worst worst things, really honestly, is is a lot of self doubt that you're never certain if it's the right decision. Uh, there's not a safety net there if you do make the wrong decision. So there's a lot of fear and anxiety and other entrepreneurs go through the same thing. So it's certainly not for the faint of heart. So you have to continue to remind yourself uh, about that self-fulfillment to, to get rid of that self-doubt.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask, you, know, you talked about um, you know, COVID and virtual events and hybrid you're I'm looking forward to getting back to in-person events. I'm vaccinated. I'm ready to go. It's safe. I think now let's, let's do this. You're organizing some in-person events. If you want to tell the audience about that.
1: Oh, I am the most excited about our in-person events this year. We have continuous improvement in Nebraska, which is September 2nd in Omaha. And then we have continuous improvement, Oklahoma, which is September 16th in Tulsa. We're developing these smaller regional conferences so that we can bring people back together in person because we truly believe in that dynamic of bringing people together in a room and amazing things happen, Uh, but shifting the priority to regional events so that uh, we understand companies have a lot of limitations on travel and expenses, So keeping that travel reduced, keeping the expenses low, and then creating that that network and that community within some of these regions.
0: So we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for for that. Um, I mean, I imagine you've talked to members of your CII community. You've talked to others. Like, what what is the voice of the customer saying right now about willingness, readiness, comfort level coming (laughs) back to an in-person event?
1: So generally what I'm finding is that continuous improvers are eager to get back together, but still a little bit hesitant, but more really driven by their corporate requirements. Each company has set up different requirements. And so I think that's a driving behavior more than, than anything else so that the individuals are very eager, but companies I think are a little bit uh, more hesitant and will kind of dip their toe in the water before they, they open up the floodgates to let everyone go back to events.
0: Yeah. There's the cost factor. They might also be thinking uh, in terms of liability or, or other, other factors, but uh, we've, we've got to start making our way back into that again. So um, I hope those events um, go well and that, that people are, um, uh, okay. yeah. Going to show up and participate and uh, be part mm-hmm. of that. So I wish, uh, yeah, I, I I believe the hypothesis that people are ready and this will this will be good timing.
1: Yeah, our, our our key performance indicators is a willingness to get speakers to come, and we have incredible speakers lined up for each event. So if that's an indicator of future success, it's going to be incredible. Just such a great diverse group of people coming to speak at both events.
0: Have you made any announcements about that, or can, do, you, do you want to drop any names of uh, who those speakers are?
1: Oh, goodness. Yes. In uh, Tulsa, we have Jason Ketchum from One Gas, Sarah Gallagher from Persimmon. Uh, we just announced today Matthew Singh is coming to Omaha. Uh, he works for uh, state of Nebraska. Rachel Prudhomme, Jesse DePriest. I mean, just these, these cool people who have done so much in continuous improvement, all of those speakers are announced on our websites right now. So we have announced all but uh, one speaker in each event.
0: All right. So again, I'll encourage people, to go to continuous-improvement.com, continuous improvement international to learn um, all about that. Um, so Allison, there's one, one other thing, you know, just wanted to ask, you know, we think back earlier of, you know, we, in, in COVID times, maybe get to learn a little bit more about the whole person and not just the um, project or the tools that we're working with or the, the the business challenges and culture change. I think you're unique out of any of the guests on the podcast in terms of pageant experience. It says here on your LinkedIn profile that you were Mrs. Oklahoma America 2008 to 2009. So I, w- I was just kind of curious, for one, like, did your background in continuous improvement affect the way you went through the pageant, pageant process? or you know has that pageant process helped you in your career I'm, I'm just curious kind of like the couple sides if you want to tell us about yeah. any of that
1: gosh i i think probably the the process of going through pageants has helped me in my career uh, more than i would have ever imagined i think i was drawn to pageants because i've always worked in male dominated types of fields i've always been in an engineering i worked for the railroad i worked for utilities And pageants are are almost an outlet, but things that pageants taught me were things like understanding how others perceive you. What is your personal brand? And so when we're thinking about continuous improvement and ability to influence others, understanding how others perceive you and how you communicate with them is Incredibly important. So, pageants helped me understand that and helped me balance out you know, my hard skills with my soft skills, be able to use my listening skills to work with people and relate to them. So, that's um, Mrs. Oklahoma and the Mrs. America experience were so valuable to me. But uh, yeah, continuous improvement. <laughs> I've written multiple articles about continuous improvement and pageants because oh, so many okay. of the same concepts. <laughs>
0: So, um, we'll have to link uh, to some of that, uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. The,
1: there's um, some insights articles that I've, I've written out there about continuous improvement and beauty pageants.
0: So we'll, we'll post links uh, of people who want to do uh, a deeper dive. So, um, yeah, I have not thought through, you're right. So, um, I mean, so I'm just curious, like there's, there's kind of, um, a hierarchy. You had to win different pageants to then have the chance to win Mrs. Oklahoma. Is that right?
1: So Mrs. Oklahoma is on an application basis. So you apply to compete. If you're chosen, you are given a local title. I was Mrs. Enid. We were living in, in Eden, Eden when my husband was going through uh, Air Force pilot training. And then from there, I won Mrs. Oklahoma. And then I went to the Mrs. America pageant and then placed in the top 12. Well, great. And then well, Mrs. America goes to Mrs. World.
0: Okay, I was curious. I have one friend from high school who had um, competed in some of the the pageants that feed up through Miss Michigan mm-hmm. to then up through Miss America, and she went pretty far in that process for Miss Michigan. So um, it was you know, that's going back a that's little ways great. now, but interesting to hear her process and and how that helped. But I mean, you know, through that pageant process, do do you get you, you mentioned kind of the growth opportunities? Do you get specific feedback then that was helpful as opposed to just like, you know, yes, you've moved on or not.
1: You, you do. There's a pretty intensive preparation process. So as I was preparing to compete for Mrs. Oklahoma, I did mock interviews, practice interviews with lots of different people. So they're uh, asking every tough question they can possibly think of trying to, to stump the chump and then getting, uh, you know, lots of subject matter experts to help with fitness and nutrition, uh, posing and walking, working on poise. And then that's multiplied after I won Mrs. Oklahoma. There's a whole team that supports you and does um you know, all sorts of practice and and rehearsal to get you um, your, your absolute best that you can be.
0: Well, again, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, it's possible someone else I've interviewed before was involved in pageants and I just didn't know, but since that's part of your, your bio and your profile, I thought it was an opportunity to to ask and learn a little bit more about you and, and how that's influenced you. So I'm glad we could at least touch on that a little bit. Um, so our guest again today has been Allison Greco. Um, continuous Improvement International is the organization, continuous-improvement.com. Um, like it says on the sign, for those uh, who are not watching the video, um, Allison has a sign behind her and it says, educate, execute, engage. And so, if you're for help with any of that and to be part of a continuous improvement community, you can check out what Allison is doing. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? I'll, I'll give you kind of the last word here.
1: I I appreciate the opportunity and I'm looking forward to the future of CII because I I know that there's so much potential for continuous improvers when we can join together as continuous improvers and grow and share and learn together. So looking forward to having more people participate in the membership and then really grateful for opportunities like this where we can continue to share uh, the love and the passion for continuous improvement in lean.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that, Allison. Thanks again for being a guest here with us today.
1: You're welcome.
0: Well, thanks again to Allison Greco for being our guest today. For links and show notes, you can go to leanblog.org slash 419. Please follow, rate, and review. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.